From Coast to Coast to Coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Amanda Rooney, and I'll be your host for this week's episode of Terra Informa, bringing you environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we're bringing back a bug-themed episode. Our partners at Science Faction discuss what fire ants can teach us about physics. And we're bringing you a story about how bugs can help piece together a murder. But first, here are this week's headlines. You can take our official Twitter, but you'll never take our free time. That's one of the first tweets from the Alt Nat Park Service account. It's one of many rogue Twitter accounts linked to the U.S. federal agencies whose staff are resisting the Trump administration's attempt to muzzle them. The story starts right after Donald Trump was inaugurated as the new U.S. president. The Badlands National Park account in South Dakota tweeted a series of facts about climate change. The tweets were deleted almost immediately, and the account has since gone silent. The White House has responded quickly by ordering many agencies to stop using social media or speaking to reporters. Before long, rogue accounts associated with many of those agencies popped up and started tweeting facts about climate change, along with criticisms of Trump. Well, that's enough about Trump for now. The Alberta government has finalized the boundaries of two new parks along the Rocky Mountains, and a local quadding group is not so happy. The new Castle Wildland Provincial Park and Castle Provincial Park will cover an area of the Rockies just north of Waterton Lakes National Park and the U.S. border. The area of the new park is home to endangered and threatened wildlife species like grizzly bears, tiger salamanders, and whitebark pine trees. It also includes sites important to local indigenous peoples, like the Picani First Nation. The province says it intends to protect the local ecosystems and make space for recreation, but it's also planning to phase out trails used for quads and other off-highway vehicles. The province is inviting public comment until March 20th. There's a link to that survey on our website at terrainforma.ca. Piecing together a crime can be messy business. Police can run up against unreliable witnesses or destroyed evidence. But what if the animals around a body could tell you a story about what happened? Chris Chang-Yen Phillips has this story from forensic entomologist and Simon Fraser University professor Gail Anderson in Vancouver. The victims involved two young women who had been shot in the head from a single shot from a 2-2. And they were found on May the 17th by two young men that I always called two innocent young hikers. They were actually on their way to uh, attend their marijuana patch when they found the, uh, the young ladies. But fortunately, they had the decency to report this to the police. Um, and it was a case where I wasn't able to attend the, the scene. The police attended the crime scene, so they did a collection at the scene and then brought the insects to me. Hi, I'm Dr. Gail Anderson from the School of Criminology at Simon Fraser University, and I'm a board-certified forensic entomologist. For privacy reasons, Gail couldn't tell us the names of the people involved in this story. So consider this her interpretation of what happened to these women. Well, this is a case from quite a few years ago now. It was a time when the police were not yet used to the idea of calling a civilian into a crime scene. So uh, the police collected the evidence and sent it to me. What do you hope that you're able to find when you first arrive at a scene? 
I hope I'm going to be able to find uh, insects uh, in a situation that I'm going to be able to help. I mean, it's frustrating when you, you get to a scene and the, there aren't any insects or the insect evidence has been damaged. Or it's a, a, a situation where, for instance, you've got a body that's found in early spring in the, you know, the, the prairie somewhere, and uh, they could have been there all winter. And I can't tell because the insects aren't going to be there then. So I'm going to say, well, certainly uh, she was dead by beginning of May of this year, but seeing as it was, that was the start of the insect season, she could have died, you know, in February, but I can't tell, and that's frustrating. And so the insects were collected and sent to me, and I did an analysis, but because the police were doing the collection, uh, they collected from the body, but they didn't realize they had to collect also from outside the body, because once the insects reach a certain stage in their development, they leave the body looking for a nice safe place in which to pupate. And so a lot of the older insects, the insects that put my time frame back the furthest, uh, might have already left the body. But I don't know that for sure. They could have done, they might not have done. So what I had to do was come up with an underestimate uh, of time since death. So I said the death had occurred on or before May the 6th. It had probably occurred before May the 6th, because as I say, I was underestimating it. And I always work with a minimum anyway, because that's the most safe thing to do in any of these situations. Well, I submitted my report, and sometime later the police brought forward two eyewitnesses who said they'd seen the killings take place in front of them on May the 3rd. Well, obviously, they can be a lot more specific than I can be because they were actually there. They saw it happen. But if you just stop and think about that for a second, they say they saw the murder take place in front of them, mm. but they didn't bother to tell anybody. So are the police going to believe them? Primarily, insects uh, will give an estimate of a lapse of time since death, but there are a lot of other things we can do with insects. For instance, um, insects are attracted primarily to a wound site on a body. And if there isn't a wound site, they go for the natural orifices. Now, once the body's even slightly decomposed, it may be very difficult to see where those wounds are. And you can get a very fatal wound that doesn't actually hit the hard tissues. So, you know, you can get a wound in the, in the gut or in the throat or something like that, and it doesn't actually hit the hard tissues, so you can't see that on the skeleton. But if you look at the pattern of colonization of the insects, if the insects have colonized, say, in the gut first, and then later colonized the orifices, then it would be a strong suggestion that that's a wound in that area. Now, I'm not going to be the one to make the call. That, that's going to be a forensic pathologist. But as an entomologist, I'm going to say, hey, we need to look really closely in this particular area because it's quite likely there's a wound in this site. And we can use them to work out whether the body's been moved from one place to another. Certain species of insects are very specifically found in one area and not another. For instance, some insects are very commonly found in an urban region, but you'd never find them in a rural region and vice versa. So if you find bodies in a rural area and the insects on them uh, come from an urban area, that would suggest that the body has been moved from uh, a city area out into the bush area. What insects did you, were you able to find in that first um, set of insects? Well, the very first insects that colonize a body after death are the Califoridae, also known as blowflies. That's the blue or green metallic buzzy flies you see buzzing around all over. They're the ones attracted to your garbage. And they're interested in your food or your garbage, not for themselves, but they're looking for somewhere nice to lay their eggs. They're looking for a nursery for their babies. And so that's what the dead body is. It's a nursery for their babies. That somewhere that they can lay their eggs, those eggs will hatch into maggots, the maggots will feed on the body, and then eventually move away, pupate, just like a, a caterpillar forms a cocoon, and then emerges the adult fly and life keeps on going. So what we found there was uh, maggots on the body of a certain age, but uh, the, the insects, the oldest insects they found, were just starting to leave the body. Hadn't quite done it yet, but were just starting to. So it's quite possible some of them already had, and I might have missed those. Hence I said May 6th, uh, May 6th but could have been earlier. So the police brought forward two eyewitnesses who said they'd seen the killings take place in front of them. So are the police going to believe them? 
Well, the police did believe them because they have what we call the holdback or the key fact information. And key fact information is something about a crime scene that we released to nobody. It might be something about the the victim's positions, what they were wearing, how they died, what the weapon was, anything like that. But it's something that's going to be known only to the killer, to any eyewitnesses to the crime, to uh, the police that work the crime scenes, and people like me who are privy to this sort of information. It's not something that's ever released to the media. It's not even something that the family are told. So it's holdback information. And this means when somebody comes forward and says that they committed this crime or, or somebody confesses in, a, in an interrogation, uh, and they say something like, I'm sorry, I shot her. Well, no, you didn't. We can move on to the next person uh, because we know that she wasn't shot or whatever. So this kind of information is involved in, in most of our homicides and is very, very useful to work out who's telling the truth. And in this particular case, the two boys did know the holdback information. So the police were quite sure that the boys had, in fact, been witnesses and had, in fact, been about to be the next uh, victims because the guy went bang, 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 and on the third shot, the bullet jammed and the, and the two young guys ran like hell. Um, but the question is, is a jury going to believe them? Because again they saw a murder take place and they didn't come forward um, and then it got worse because uh, defense brought forward what was known in prosecution circles as the elvis witnesses you know people that claim they see elvis all the time <laughs> well these two nice sweet middle-aged ladies everybody's mom swore down dead that they'd seen one of the victims alive and well and shopping at the mall on may the 9th now who are you going to believe these two nice sweet middle-aged ladies with no obvious hidden agenda or these two young guys who said they saw a murder take place and never bothered to tell anybody so all of a sudden, my evidence became vital because I could say that death had occurred on or before May the 6th. Yes, they could have easily died on the 3rd when the young boy said they did. But there's no way she was alive and well and shopping at the mall on May the 9th. She was very dead by that point. How did you feel when you knew your evidence would decide the fate of the man who'd been accused? Well, that was quite a long time ago, so it's, it's kind of scary, you know, when you, when you realize that your evidence is the most important part there. Uh, but it makes you feel really good, too, because I'm not going to say anything in court that I'm not very sure of. I'm only going to say what I what I absolutely know, and, and science doesn't lie. So um, if that's the case, that's the case, and that's, that's excellent. That means the right people are going to get convicted. It does make myself and all of my students, hopefully under me, um, very, very cautious about what we do in that we, you know, you repeat things many times, and I, I impress upon my students that you don't say anything unless you're sure of it. Uh, you put all the caveats in place and that sort of thing. Because uh, in a lot of science, you know, you publish something and then you do some more work and you think, ah, oh, well, that wasn't quite correct. Uh, now I'm, I'm changing that in the next publication. You can't do that here because we might have uh, used that in court in, in certain uh, situation. So you've got to be very, very sure and very, very careful of what you do. But it also means that you, you feel really good about your research because you know that it's, it's doing something really valuable. It's hmm. being really well used. That's interesting. I'd never thought about the timeline issue before. Like if someone gets puts out a, a study and, and it turns out that their research was there was a flaw in it, usually it the only impact that it has is on the people reading their research. But Yeah, or you just think, Oh, so we will look at it in this direction. This this is why I, I say it's very, very important to look at a minimum time of death rather than to try to give an average or mean standard errors and never a maximum, anything like that. I want to be able to say something I can say in court absolutely for sure because courts don't want to hear about, you know, 75% this and that sort of thing. They want some absolutes. But I'm always going to err on the side of caution. I'm going to underestimate that timing. I'm going to tell you how long the insects have been there, not the actual time of death. And we just presume that death occurred prior. Hmm. Now, who are you going to believe? These two nice, sweet, middle-aged ladies with no obvious hidden agenda, or these two young guys who said they saw a murder take place and never bothered to tell anybody? My testimony was believed, and it supported that of the two young guys, refuted that of the middle-aged ladies. 
So when the ladies got up on the stand, they were not believed, and when the young boys got up on the stand, they were believed, and he, they could say he did it. And he was convicted of two counts of first-degree murder. He's presently serving life without parole for 25 years. That's the kind of thing that my evidence will do. People ask me, how much training do I have in forensics? Absolutely zero. Um, all my training is in entomology and biology, zoology, and then I was asked by the police to apply that knowledge into an entomology, into a forensic setting. So my actual knowledge of its application was got, was received at the crime scene from, from the autopsy, from the pathologist, from the lawyers I worked with, that sort of thing, all in the field. So you started, you started your professional career. Uh, in entomology, and now you Yes, moved. exactly. As a medical, well, as a basic entomologist at first, I suppose, and then specifically as a medical and veterinary entomologist. Yeah. So how has your research changed your relationships with insects, with, with, with nature around you? Well, I, I mean, I've always been, in, I've always been, in, I'm a zoologist, so I've always been interested in animals of all types. And I, I find insects fascinating. Most of my work is with insects originally, you know, that sort of were harmful. So, you know, mosquitoes and, and biting flies and things like that that cause damage to humans. Now I'm dealing with insects that most people find fairly repulsive, but they are nature's little garbage recyclers. They're very, very important in our ecosystem. And more to the point now, when we start looking at them in a forensic context, they're incredibly valuable to us. That was Chris Chang and Phillips speaking with Gail Anderson back in 2012. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Alberta, on Treaty 6 territory. You can tweet us at Terra Informa or email us at terra at cjsr.com or leave us a message at 780-492-2577. Special thanks to Chris Chang and Phillips for contributing and for headlines. To Carter Gorzitsa for website, Shelley Jodwin for coordination, and here I am doing production. Stay tuned to hear an episode from our partners, Science Faction. I've been your host, Amanda Rooney, and I'll catch you next week on Terra Informa. Science Faction is a show about unbelievable discoveries. Science Faction! Listening to Science Faction. Dalal, what do you picture when you think about ants? I see myself as a kid in summer. I'm outside holding one of those looking glasses, which I had taken from my mom's desk. And I'm dying to find out if what my sister told me is true. Can I really set that little thing on fire? <laughs> What about you? Ants also remind me of a summer afternoon. I would sit outside for what seemed like hours, just watching ants build. They'd go in and out of the ground, leaving empty-handed, but always coming back, arms totally full. They looked like amazing builders. They truly are amazing builders, which is why we're going to spend our very first science faction show talking to you about the best ant builders known to science. Fire ants. I'm Andrea. I'm Dalal, and today on Science Faction, we bring you Fire Ant Physics. Science Faction 101. We speak in the thousand most used words. The researchers we talk to 
don't. These thousand words come from the Opera 5 text editor. Made by scientist Theo Sanderson. <laughs> Theo Sanderson. We build on these accepted words using prefixes and suffixes. And we allow the use of numbers and names. From the names of people and places to the names of life forms and scientific fields. We see these few little exceptions as key to bringing you stories factually and informatively. And now for the show. Fire ants come from wetlands in the Brazilian Amazon, where it rains a lot. And by a lot, I mean up to three meters every year. Can you imagine that kind of rain? That's more rain than we get each year in Montreal, Seattle, and London all together. You might be able to climb on top of something to escape three meters of rain, but these ants are tiny, growing only six millimeters tall. So when it rains as much and as often as it does in the Amazon, they need to have an escape plan. And their plan is so good that they have become rock stars in the world of science. Today, we want to take you there. Imagine yourself as a fire ant. You're underground, just hanging out, doing your ant business. When all of a sudden, your home is filled with water, and before you know it, it's up to your neck. There's no obvious way out. But you're a fire ant, so you're going to find one. You grab hold of the ant beside you. And she grabs hold of the ant beside her. And she grabs hold of the ant beside her. And so on and so on, until you've reached the ants that have made it above ground. And here is where the story gets interesting. Once out, still surrounded by water, with more rain falling, the ants don't just cut and run. They go into this formation. Some side by side, others on top of each other, forming a sort of ball. Meet one of the world's top fire ant researchers. Uh, my name is David Who, pronounced Who like the British sitcom Doctor Who. He first heard about fire ants Invicta when he was in grad school at the Georgia Institute of Technology. He now works with Craig Tovey. He's a, he's a mathematician. In particular, he's a modeler. And he used to work with Nathan Malott, He's the first brave soul to really study fire ants the way we study them, which is from the perspective of engineers. Together, this team has figured out a lot about the physics of these fire ants. To do this, they had to bring the ant world into their lab. They brought a ton of ants from the great outdoors of Georgia right into Georgia Tech. At any given time, there'll be about 600,000 ants in our lab, maybe five or six colonies. A colony is about 100,000 ants, which is about two cups. A word of warning. Do not try this at home, kids. Fire ants are very hard to keep um, in a container. And they won't delay before setting up shop just about anywhere. And we have to deal with these emergency calls all the time because ants are always escaping our lab. <laughs> that sounds very funny. One of the first things they tried to figure out is how this magical ant fall works. So they put thousands of ants into the water to see how they'd react. And what happened? The ants just stayed on the surface. Minutes passed, with some ants under the water and others on top. You'd think that the ones underneath would run out of air, but they didn't. And here's how David explains it. What the ant does, if you look very closely at images of an ant underwater, it actually traps air bubbles all around its body. I mean, imagine if you went underwater and you had all these sort of um, Christmas ornaments of bubbles stuck to you. 
Well, the ant has so many that, first of all, those bubbles help buoy it back up to the surface and breathe um, underwater like a fish. And so that's how the ants survive when they're underwater. They don't drown. This ant ball can actually stay in the water not just for minutes or days or even weeks. These rafts, sometimes they float out to the ocean. So imagine it's sort of this lost ship and they'll survive for months and they'll actually start eating, eating their eggs and eating their babies and things like that. More fire ant physics right after this break. Hi, I'm astronaut Chris Hadfield. You're listening to Science Faction. It's in part thanks to this remarkable ability that the ants have moved out of Brazil and all the way to Georgia, where Doctor Who studies them today. And get this, the ants didn't stop at Georgia. They're now on every continent except for Antarctica. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's really amazing. (laughs) That's so cool. (laughs) Okay, okay, I'm moving on. (laughs) But that's not even the exceptional part. It's what they do getting from one place to the next that is unlike any other animal. If on their way they encounter a roadblock, maybe a fallen tree in the water, or a space that's too big for any one of them to jump across, they band forces and build a passage over whatever gets in their way. You might be picturing the ants building the way that we do, only using sticks and leaves instead of two-by-fours. Yeah, like the way beavers use pieces of wood to block running water. But what sets fire ants apart from the rest is that they don't need stuff to build with. They act as little miniature building materials. So they're both construction workers and they're the bricks. And to top it off, they're also the repairmen. If a crack forms, the ants immediately move around to fill it in. Fire ant buildings therefore have the ability to self-repair. Just imagine if our buildings were able to fix themselves like the ants' buildings can. We wouldn't have to worry about old, falling-down buildings like the Leaning Tower of Pisa ever coming to the ground. Its building blocks would just keep putting themselves back together again. But a lot of interest in building what's called self-healing materials. But it's the idea of having materials like bricks and concrete behave a lot more like living materials. Okay, let's revisit the facts. First, we have a group of fire ants that can stay on water for months at a time. Second, these ants are able to use themselves as building blocks in getting from water to safety. And third, fire ant buildings have the ability to self-repair. That's already a lot. But who thinks that there's a lot more that we can learn from these ants? He hopes that his research will tell us how to build tiny computerized blocks that mirror the ants' activity and repair themselves, or maybe even put themselves together. Just like the ants do. So, he and his team run all kinds of small experiments. They press, push, and pull the ants in all directions. They even drop them to understand how they put themselves back together again. So we're really interested in quantifying how good building materials the ants are. It's basically kind of like a torture chamber for ants. That's what our lab is. It's kind of the unofficial motto. But whose team is doing more than just putting the ants through hell? They're doing serious fire ant physics. Imagine you have ants and they built a bridge, and we'll subject that bridge to shaking. So we'll have these very high-persistent shakers. We can change the amplitude and vibration of the shaking to similar that the ants would experience in nature. They act like a really strong wind, or like breaking waves. To see how the ants react, they make a movie. We basically use high-speed video. These cameras that are cord, um, 
5,000 frames per second, so almost more than 100 times faster than a regular camera. And we can record where each ant goes in the bridge, and we can record how quick, how much the bridge um, changes in shape due to the, due to the um, stimuli applied. So then, they make some popcorn, watch the movie, and look very closely at each still. And what caught their eye had to do with the physical state of the ants. Or should we say, states? Um, the ants are what we call a viscoelastic fluid. A visco what? Take another listen. Um, the ants are what we call a viscoelastic fluid. You know, I don't really get what that means. Um, that means they have the properties of both solid materials and fluids. So one question we ask are, are they a fluid or a solid? Seems like a pretty simple question. Well, it turns out that they're both. So ants are both a fluid and a solid. So it depends on what kind of conditions they have. But so what? What's the big deal about being both? What do you mean, what's the big deal? This is an important discovery. Fire ants are the only known living thing able to flip between physical states. This viscoelastic property is very important in dealing with an uncertain environment. Uh, one example is surviving floods. So imagine this ant raft is um, flowing along, and um, let's say it, it strikes a stick. It could become stuck, adhered to the stick, but what happens, imagine it would strike the stick, and it would actually, over a long period of time, it would flow around the stick and then keep on going. So this property prevents objects from getting in the, in the raft's way, and it also reduces the force. Understanding the physics of fire ants is a big step towards humans being able to match the way that ants build and make our own buildings that can self-repair. This reminds me of how Velcro was inspired by burdock burrs. You know when you walk through the woods and those tiny little pointy things stay stuck all over your clothes and in your hair? Oh yes, just like Velcro. Science is always learning from plants and animals. And in this story, the physicists are learning from fire ants in the hopes of making new types of building blocks that self-repair or perhaps even put themselves together. This is the field of modular, modular robotics. So imagine you have a bucket of small robot parts, and um, you dump it on the ground. And these small robots would link their bodies together and stand up and eventually build a larger, more capable robot. Well, this is one of the grand challenges of the robotics community, um, robots that can really link together in a fashion that's similar to the way our body has linked small entities together and performing um, one grand function. This could be very important for space discovery, as NASA is no longer sending many people to space. With this technology, we could send a single set of computerized parts that can put themselves together in different ways and perform many different jobs. Back here on Earth, this same technology could be used to make one bucket of stuff that does lots of everyday jobs, like cleaning the car or cutting the grass. But we're not quite there yet. So in the meantime, the next best thing might just be to keep learning from those fire ants. I think David said it best, so we'll give him the last words of the day. I mean, a lot of things that ants can do are only what roboticists could dream of. So imagine 100,000 individual entities, and um, they all combine together and they form one task. There's an inherent robustness in having lots of different parts. You can take any one of these ants out, and the structure will still be there, and it'll still perform its functions. And there's also this idea of, I mean, this is getting into um, philosophical things, but 
The ants are an example of an emergent system. So when the ants build a bridge, or they build a raft, or they build a tower, the way they build is very different from the way um, we build things. So there's no sort of construction worker. There's no boss, no leader. The building emerges from the ants following these simple rules and just interacting. I mean, you can imagine it's similar to the way your brain works. Your brain is composed of individual cells that really just all they do is fire, um, and they fire according to whether they're fired upon. You have one or two cells, you don't really get very much. Same with one or two ants, but when you put 100,000 together, you start to get things that can sink, and then you got Shakespeare and things like that. And so understanding the physics behind how these emergent things come about from these simple interactions, that's, that's sort of also one of the big um, interests in why we're studying ants, too. That's a wrap. Thanks for checking out Science Faction's first show, Fire Ant Physics. We're done for now, but we do want to hear from you. Get in touch with us on Twitter at SciFact Radio. And search for us on Facebook. Science Faction is Delal Hanna and Andrea Reed with sounds and music made by Nick Schofield and is supported by Jeanne Volontaire. Visit us online at sciencefaction.ca. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks again. <laughs>